0: don't know my name is Monique <laughs> how about you guys grab your seat say hello to the person next to you ask them are you ready are you ready for tonight yes yes we got some folks who are ready here tonight but well, gosh I don't even know if I'm ready <laughs> uh, yeah yeah so my name is Monique um, I uh, have uh, such a privilege to work here at church and actually I um, uh, I I've been at this church for, I think it's what, 18 years, Mum. Yeah, yeah, 18 years. It's it's been a while. <laughs> um, but no, I just I love I love the what this church does, and I love how we make everyone feel so much like family, and and we get to celebrate baptisms tonight, which is so exciting. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so um, no, if there's anything that I can say tonight is please hold on to what Jan just said before, how much God loves you, how much He loves you, how much He knows you, and yet still loves you. (laughs) Gosh, isn't it hard to know that you are... Like you are seen and yet still loved every part of you, every, every dark corner of your heart, every um, thought that you've thought God sees it, but he still loves you. He loves you so much that he died for you so that he could be in relationship with you once more. um, Anyways, I, I didn't plan to say that, but I just really felt like God wanted everyone here to know how much he loves them. All right, now, now on to the message. <laughs> um, I, um, am, uh, I, before I worked at church, um, I worked at a university as a, um, a, a research assistant in psychology. Oh, I just kicked that down. I meant to adjust it. Um, uh, and then before that, I spent my summers working in a cafe any hospitality workers out here or anyone who's done that before you guys are amazing (laughs) look it is a hard gig actually is there anyone who's working over the summer break I know some of us are taking a break um Christmas and New Year's but anyone working over the summer break yeah okay can everyone just give them a round of applause you guys are amazing God bless you May he give you the strength to work through these holidays. I remember working in my cafe, um, a few cafes. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, uh, uh, <laughs> and um, I remember working in it over Christmas and New Year's. And, and look, it's um, one thing I can say for hospitality is it's character building. <laughs> you deal with angry customers, angry managers, angry co-workers... But scariest of all, you deal with angry chefs. Oh, wow. Trust me. <laughs> that is a whole nother level. Like Gordon Ramsay? Yeah, yeah, they expect that. No, okay, all right, all right. I know that there might be some chefs in this room. Look, I've nothing against you guys. But all the chefs that I've worked with have been lovely friends and had <laughs> short tempers. And I have a theory behind it. I studied psych, but this is not a scientific theory. Bear with me. My theory is that kitchens are hot. Oh. And in hot places, people get grumpy. It's quite good. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. As the temperatures rise, so do the tempers. As the pressure rises, so do. and the language and everything else and um, i look if i was in the same situation i don't know how i would fare but i would just like to say that across the board if if we are in hot situations we're places where the temperatures are high the pressure's on that's where your character is put to the test that's where what you say is your standard is put to the test That's where your character and your values are put to the test. It's not when it's calm that everything is, you're confronted with what your standard is. It's when the pressure is on that your character and your standards are put to the test. And over time as well, rising pressures and standards can actually change you if you're not careful to set the standard ahead of time. And I want to speak to that tonight. There are three young men in the Bible um, who I think exemplify this um, more than anyone else, really, that I can think of. They face more pressure than most to compromise, and they felt the heat of it more than most, but they held to their standards. And if you guys would all like to grab your Bibles, we're going to do a deep dive, not super deep, but pretty deep, um, on, on Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. I hope you guys caught my my hints at the start. Um, we are going to be talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the blazing furnace that they dealt with. So Daniel chapter 3. Now, hey, the, the book of Daniel um, is written... Um, Thousands of years ago when the Israelites were exiled from their homeland and brought um, into captivity by the Babylonians, Um, a few of their young men, their best, their brightest, were actually taken and taken into the king's court to be raised as officials. They were taught and fed and housed and clothed and all of these things and they were encouraged to, uh, basically they were treated like princes. Um, And it's a great way that um, the Babylonians used to help assimilate the cultures and make sure that there was less um, issues or uh, grumpy Israelite people amongst their people as well. So that was just a great conquering tactic. Um, Not great for the Israelites, but (laughs) oh well. Um, One of them was called Daniel, who the book was named after, obviously. Um, And another three were his mates, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And all of them were renamed with Babylonian names when they were accepted into court. It might show up on the screen. Oh, there we go. Um, I won't read it out to you, but you can see all of them were renamed with Babylonian names when they were accepted into court, which was common practice these days. So, like Shadrach, Hananiah, meant Yahweh has been gracious, but he was renamed Shadrach inspired of Aku. Aku and Nego were all Babylonian gods. So you can see that the, the Israelite boys with names all to do with our God were then renamed after Babylonian gods. So it was an attempt to change their identity. Who knows that names have power? Yeah, so the pressure was on even then. Now we go to Daniel chapter 3. And I'm, it's a big passage. I'm going to um, paraphrase it. And I encourage you to read it in your own time. So the paraphrase goes like this, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, we'll call him King Neb, uh, because it's it's the name, um, or King (laughs) Nezzah, no, King Neb, Um, he was the king of Babylon at that time, he decided, do you know what, I will build an image of myself made out of gold, and not only will I build an image made out of gold. I won't make it just life size. I'll make it 60 cubits high. For the lay people in this room, including myself, 60 cubits is about 27 meters tall. That's as tall, almost as tall as a 10 story building. So King Neb was like, I'll just make a little statue of myself and then I will invite all of the officials in the land to come and worship it. And so he invited all of them and he said, oh, you know what else I'll do? I'll get myself my own very own band of musicians and I'll get them to make a theme song for me. So then he invited all of the officials in the land and he was like, here's the deal, my guys. I'm going to get you to worship this fantastic statue of me. You see it? There, there it is. Hard to miss. I want you to worship it, fall down and worship it when you hear my theme song coming through. Anyone else felt like doing that on a Saturday afternoon? (laughs) Nah. So King Neb, in all his humility, got the band to start playing. They played the theme song, What Happens, of course. Oh, by the way, King Neb also put a little bit of a caveat in his command. He said, hey, look, your choice whether or not you do this. But if you don't do it, I'll just throw you in the blazing furnace we've got over there in the corner. And so, what, what happens when we need the theme song plays? Everyone bows down. Everyone starts worshiping for their lives. Um, and then a couple of snitches come to King Neb. And they're like, hey, Neb, you know how you told us to do this? You know how you told us to worship? Well, well, there's like three guys over there, not going to name names, but there's three guys over there who just aren't doing that. Not going to name names, but, you know, they're, they're not paying attention to your commands. Not going to name names. It was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And King Neb's like, no way. Furious, he calls them up and he goes, why aren't you guys doing what I've told you to do? Fiery furnace, hello, any incentives there? And they were like, hmm, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I don't know about you guys, but if I was faced with a fiery furnace and the pressure of that, I don't know what I would do. I, like you could, you could have said anything in that time. They could have said to each other, hey, why die when we could do so much better and so much more good by living? Or they could have said, hey, Everyone else is doing it. It'll be fine. It's just ten minutes. Well, they could have said, "Hey, you know what? Like, we might lose our jobs and our standard of living. (laughs) I'll lose a lot more than that." Um, And but what they said was, "If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it." And they said, "Even if He does not, we want you to know, King Neb." That we will not serve your gods or serve the image of gold you have set up. Then what happens? Neb is so furious at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That he orders this furnace to be made seven times hotter than it previously was. He gets his strongest guys to take the three young men, throw them into the furnace. The three, the strong soldiers who threw them in, the furnace was so hot that they died from the heat throwing these young men into the furnace. Talk about... (laughs) Talk about kitchens and being hot, am I right? So these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And I just want to take a pause there because that story, I'm leaving you guys on a bit of a cliffhanger, that story really, um, really challenged me. As I was reading it, I felt an overwhelming sense of God saying, if you live live for something worth dying for. If you live, live for something worth dying for. Do you know that 5,900 Christians were killed for standing up for their faith in the last year, in 2022? Because they wouldn't renounce Christianity. Man, what are you willing to lay down your life for? (laughs) What values would you stake your life on? What hill will stand the test of time and ring into eternity? I'm so challenged by that because I I pray that I have the strength if I'm ever, Lord forbid, faced with a situation like that. But I pray that I am able to stand firm on my values and stand firm to the standard that God has set for me. So what hill is worth dying on? What is worth living for? Live for something worth dying for, for someone worth dying for. How about the one who gave his life for us? Can I put it to you that Jesus is the only thing in this world that is worthy of living for? Worthy of living for. You can live for yourself or for others or for a cause you think is worthy. But better to live for a perfect God than an imperfect world. Better to live for the one who made us than live for the world he made. Better to live for the one who loved us, who is greater than us than to live for ourselves and live our own way. And we only need looker at the world around us to see what has happened from man living his own way and choosing his own path. The brokenness and the suffering that comes from being a world apart from God. So, Stop living for yourself, for others. Live for God. Live for something greater than yourself. Live for something worth living for. Live for something worth dying for. And I mean live. Don't just say it. Christianity is acknowledging Christ as Lord of your life. It's not just saying, oh, I believe in him. It's saying "God, Christ is king of my life how much of the time do we say that christ is lord but how many of us actually live as if he is lord of our lives how many of us live instead according to our own wishes and desires and not what he has commanded us to do in the scriptures how many of us even might be willing to die for christ but we aren't even willing to die to ourselves We say we die for Christ, but there's times when we won't even die to our own pride, to our own lust, to our own gluttony, to the bad habits in our lives and the sins in our lives that we know Christ, we know God knows, we know God sees. We know He sees that He's asked us to live for us and He's got a better way for us because He loves us. And we say... With our mouths that Christ is Lord, but in our actions it produces another fruit. I think of it like this, right? I just recently got married. Ooh. So fun. <laughs> and in my many months of experience, um, I can say, if I said to Sam, I'll marry you, we get married. But I don't act as if we're married. And I don't act live out with my actions as if we're married. I, if, I'm, if I try to just go my own way, living apart from Sam, thats we're married in name, but we're not married in life. We're not married in actions. How many of us as Christians are married in name to God? Not married to, in life to Him. Walking side by side, step by step with the Spirit. So instead, live for something worth dying for and die to the things that aren't worth living for. Take ownership of your life, of the gifts Christ has given you. I love this verse in Ephesians 4 where it says, 4 verse 1, it says, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. If you're a Christian, you're responsible for your discipleship journey. Christ showed you the way. Christ made the way. Holy Spirit is there to guide you, but you need to walk it. No one else can walk it for you. It's your choice whether you accept God's guidance or not. And look, okay, it's a, it's a process. I, I have not walked this walk perfectly, and I probably will not continue walking it perfectly, but at least we continue. At least we keep walking it's a constant process, but there's things we need to be aware of. Have you guys ever heard of the story of um, the how to boil a frog? Has anyone ever heard of that? There's this, it's like an urban myth. I'm pretty sure it's not correct. But the question goes, how do you boil a live frog? Um, someone really wanted to know this, apparently. How do you boil a live frog? You don't put him in boiling water, in a pan of boiling water, because he'll jump straight out. No, instead what you do is you put him in a nice cold pan of water and he goes, oh, lovely, I've got a nice bath here. And then you slowly but surely turn the temperature up until it's too late. And one way of looking at that analogy, it's a great cooking tip, by the way. Anyone? (laughs) I'll send you the recipe. (laughs) Um, Great way of looking at that analogy is that The environment around you can change if it happens at a slow enough period of time. So slow that you don't even notice yourself compromising. Time spent in a a heated space. Like I think of when I was working in that cafe, initially I came in and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna stand firm to my values. But then over time surrounded by the people, as lovely as they were, I found myself with my temper fraying, I was angrier, my language was changing. Even the way that I talked about people was changing. Because it was just time spent with slowly heating environment. And, and it's the same thing for us as well, I'd say. Same with the frog. The only way you know you change is if you have an outside standard to measure yourself against. It's the only way you get out of that hot pot. And so here's the question. My first point was live for something worth dying for. Here's my second question. What's your standard? What's your outside standard? See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they um, uh, decided ahead of time what their standard was. If you read in Daniel chapter one, you'll see that they decided To not live as the Babylonians did. They decided ahead of time, we're not going to compromise. We see that they're eating this way, they're talking this way, they're worshipping this way. We're not going to do any of those things because we're going to honour the standards of of the God of our people. Did you know that an adult makes, according to a 2017 study, 35,000 decisions per day? Remotely conscious decisions. So I'm, I'm assuming there's, like, there's a few things that aren't outright thought-provoking decisions that you make. The, just, the number might be a little bit lower, but that's still a massive amount of decisions that we make each day. And in fact, um, another 2007 study said that we, we make around 230 decisions just around food alone every single day. Mac is not. Hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, and decision fatigue can set in. So what, what happens is you can make the same amount of decisions throughout the day, however many you want to, but your ability to make a sound decision changes as your energy levels go down over time. So you're much more likely to make a good decision in the morning than you are in the evening, which is why we see so many crazy things happening at like twelve uh, 12 a.m. onwards. Um, it's why it's often recommended that you make your decisions about minor things like what to eat or wear ahead of time the night before. And in the same way for us, let's set the standard ahead of time. Let's draw the line in the sand. This is where I stake my life. This is where I stake my values. These are the things that I'm going to live by because it's a whole lot harder to set the standard when you're in the middle of temptation, when you're in the middle of the fire, and it's a whole lot easier to make big, grand gestures for Christ and not make those little decisions, It's little everyday decisions that help us to live for Him. It's a whole lot easier to do the big things than it is to do the small things. Like I said, it's a whole lot easier, I think, for me to say I'm married to Sam than it is for me to fold his laundry and for him to take out the trash for us. It's a whole lot easier, to harder to do the small things in life, the small decisions, but just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not worth doing. So set the standard ahead of time. Choose today what you're going to live for, what you're going to live like. Joshua 24 verse 15 says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And a couple couple of decision-making tips, because you can go, well, there's so many things in this world that you have to make decisions for, but the Bible doesn't cover all of the things. Bible doesn't cover some of the modern day things, like how long should I stay on my phone or stuff like that. Um... And so, in this awesome book by Gary Friesen called Decision Making in the Will of God, he, he makes a really good summary of how to make a good, godly decision. Number one, where God commands, we must obey. So, if it's in the scriptures, we obey. Context, of course, but we obey. No questions. We do it. Number two, where there isn't a command in the scriptures, God gives us the freedom and responsibility and the wisdom to make a wise choice, to make a good moral choice. He gives us his spirit to guide us. He gives us good, wise mentors around us to guide us. And then number three, when you've chosen what is moral and what is wise, then we must trust that God will work all those things together for good. So God doesn't just leave us in the dark, he provides his word and his wisdom. What is the outside standard for Christians? It's His Word and His Spirit. And we are to live and measure ourselves up against it. It is the most precious book that God could ever gave us. It's the most precious book in this world. People are dying for smuggling Bibles into places like China. And some of us have ours just sitting dusty on a shelf. It is a precious guide for us and a standard for us to live by. And then he also gives us his spirit, his helper, because we can't do this by ourselves. Galatians 5 verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So that these two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what it is that you want us to do. Now we haven't finished the story. Of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, as the band comes up behind me, I'm just going to quickly summarize that last bit. Daniel three, verse twenty-four. Now, King Neb jumps to his feet in amazement. Why does he jump in amazement? He just threw these three guys into the fire, but what he sees—the Septuagint—it's another. Information source for us, some scholars say that King Neb heard voices, so he was walking away and then he heard voices and turned around. And what he said was, he said to his guys, wait, 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 didn't we throw three guys into the fire? And they're like, yeah, of course we did. He says, no, look, there's four guys in the fire now. There's four of them, they're walking around unharmed and, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. And he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out. And he says, come out, come out. And everyone saw that there wasn't even a hair on their bodies that was singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. The only thing that had burned was the ropes that held their wrists together. And Neb said, praise be to God who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. And defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than worship any God except their own God. What what a thing worth living for. They said God is worth dying for. They trusted in Him. And I love that it says they trusted in Him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they surrendered themselves completely to God. Soul, body, and spirit. They put their faith in God regardless of the circumstances. King Nebuchadnezzar tells us who the fourth person in the fire even was. He said it was like the Son of God. The Son of God, Jesus, was there, right there with them in the fire. And and I don't even know if if these three guys knew who Jesus was back then because He was still about to come, but... But even when we don't know that Christ is with us in the trials, he is still there. Even when we don't know he's there in the fire, he is with us and he stands with us and he gives us the strength. John, 3, oh, John 16, verse 33 says, I have told you these things, says Jesus, so that in me you have, may have peace. But take heart because I have overcome the world. He has overcome the world. He has overcome, our God has overcome. Nothing in this world is worth more living for than our God. The one who displays his power so strongly that fire cannot even touch him. The one who is in the fire with us, in the storm with us, in the calms and in the trials. That is a God worth living for. The creator God who came to die for us. Nothing stands against our God. The one who made us and saved us. He is worthy. So choose now this day who you will serve. Choose and continue choosing. Hold fast to the standard. Take ownership of the grace he has given you. And live for the one worth dying for. Because he died for you. He died for you.